1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Well, to start off this morning, in honor of some of you who are still in school, and some of you who are teaching, some maybe in a school setting of a building, an organization, some at home, I thought we would do a little test this morning. This is a pass or fail test. Okay, just one question. So here's the question. But all of us can participate. Okay, here's the question. What do the following things have in common? What do the following things have in common? Cheetos, the smell of laundry detergent, marshmallow fluff. Are you getting the connections yet? Okay. Keep keep thinking. You're almost there. I can tell. Some of you are right on the verge of it. Sand, rubber tires. Are you getting it? Are you almost there? Okay. Pickles, washed clothes, and mustard. What do they all have in common? Some of you are some of you are about to get it. I can tell. Anyone got any ideas? Any guesses? Nothing. Nothing. No, that's not the answer. It's not nothing. They do have something in common. Someone? Their parish? No, that's not it. Well, you all failed this morning. Sorry about that. In a 2016 survey, all those items were in the top 25 strangest cravings of a pregnant woman. Yeah. Smell of tires. So some of those related to things they taste, some of it related to things they touch. I guess the sand was something like the touch, I don't know. Toes in the sand, I don't really know. And then some of it was things they smelled. So there's cravings they had during their pregnancy. Yeah, some of them are kind of strange. But we are not to ask questions of ladies who are pregnant like that. There are some pretty crazy cravings maybe a, a woman might have. But in our text today of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we find out that there are actually cravings that all of us have. In 1 Corinthians 10 6, it says it's the craving for that which is evil. In fact, if you look at verse 6, it instructs us to learn from the Old Testament narratives so that we might not crave, that we might not desire evil as they did. In other, in other words, each one of us has this natural desire to want that which is outside of God's will found in God's word. Many times our desires are for good things. But we desire to have those things in a sinful way or at the wrong time or in our own way. If you even think about our sermon last week in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10... Paul talked about some of these desires, and think about some of those desires were desires for good things, but they were outside of God's will. For instance, in verse 7, Israel, and then some in Corinth, desired security. They wanted peace. They wanted assurance. But instead of looking to God for those, they went to idols, and they worshiped idols. God gave Israel, and these in Corinth, and even us, the, the blessing, the gift of sexual intimacy in verse 8 says that instead of reserving that for the covenant of marriage, they desired to fulfill those desires outside of God's will. 
In verse number 9 and verse number 10, we see that God blessed them with provision. God led them. He guided them. And instead of taking those good things, the food and the water and the God's directing them through the wilderness there, instead of taking those good things and being thankful and content, they coveted and they complained. And so each one of us has this spiritual battle that is being waged every war within us. The scripture calls that the flesh. Galatians chapter 6 I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 says that we are to walk in the spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then verse 17 talks about this battle between the flesh and the spirit and our sinful desires and the Holy Spirit. And they're contrary one to the other. And so we have this spiritual war that's taking place. And that's what he's talking about in this passage here. And last week we observed in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12, that some of those sinful desires are desires that we have. And then in verse 12, we saw the warning that if we allow those desires to rule over our hearts, that it will lead us to spiritual ruin. Now, I don't know about about you, but after that passage last week and the week before, really, and maybe even the week before that, I just kind of came away with this weight of my sin and of the sinful desires that are battling within me. But Paul didn't stop with the warning in verse 12 because he penned 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and this verse gives us assurance. This is the verse to encourage you. This is the verse to give you faith. This is the verse of hope. So verses 1 through 12 are a warning. And verse 13 is the verse of hope. If the first 12 verses are the warning signs on the spiritual road of life, not to go off the cliff, verse 13 is the bridge of hope that delivers you safely to the Lord. In fact, you could, you could divide up these verses like this. Verses 1 through 12 is God making you aware of the dangers of the flesh. Verse 13 gives assurance that he's faithful to help you and deliver you. And then verse 14 is the admonition to then go by faith, flee from your sin and flee to the Lord. So you have be aware, be assured, be admonished. And so this week we're focusing on verse 13 on the assurance Be assured. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 assures you that because God is faithful, you can trust him in times of temptation. And friend, if you're in here today and you felt the weight of that sin last week, and if you feel the weight today, know this, God is faithful. And because he's faithful, you can trust him in those times of temptation. What I thought we would do this morning is read 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and 14, even though we're just focusing on verse 13. And I thought we could read that maybe aloud. All of us could read it together. If you have an ESV, you can read it in your Bible, or if you want to, you can look up on the screen. I'm going to read it directly from my Bible here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Would you read this with me? 1 Corinthians 10, 13, altogether. No temptation 
has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is God's word. Let's ask him to bless this word. Father, I pray that you will illumine our minds and our hearts. We want to understand what your word says. Lord, we want to reject the word of the world, even what our own hearts twist and think is the right thing. Lord, we want to know the truth. And Jesus said, your word, my word, he said, is truth. And so, Lord, I pray that we will know the truth, believe the truth, and trust in the truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, because God is faithful, you can trust his word about temptation. That's our first point this morning. Because God is faithful, you can trust his word about temptation. What key word is repeated in verse 13? Look at verse 13. What is verse 13 about? It's about what? It's about temptation. Verse 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape. Notice over and over, he's speaking about temptation. So it's probably good for us to know what temptation is. What does the word temptation mean? Well, the word temptation just speaks of testing. It can be related to the difficulties of life, the trials of life, or specifically to an enticement to sin against God. And many times in the scriptures, what you see is both of those are included. There's, there's a difficulty in life, and then there's a temptation to sin against God. In fact, what you'll recall from our text from the last week, you'll notice that both of those were involved and the temptations of Israel. I think the primary focus of verse 13 is on the temptation to sin against God, but I want you to notice that both of these actually are kind of combined here in this text. In fact, if you look at verse 7, you'll remember there Israel was enticed to worship idols. Verse 8, they were tempted to fulfill their Sexual desires outside of the covenant of marriage. Verse 9, they were tempted with pride. Verse 10, they were tempted to complain. And all of those took place in the context of great difficulty. They were wandering in a desert. They were seduced by neighboring nations. They were thirsty. They were eating the same thing every day, year after year. When Dana and I were over in Israel, we went through on a bus, the wilderness of Zin, it's Z-I-N, the wilderness of Zin, where they would have wandered. And while we were on this bus, we were to look out the windows and the bus um, driver, or the, I'm sorry, the tour guide told us to imagine wandering in this wilderness. It's a desolate place. 
It was very hot when we were there. It was dry and barren and dusty. And as you looked out, all you saw was rocks and dirt and sand. And that's it. And he said, imagine how you would feel if you wandered out here. In other words, it was a very difficult place for them to be. So they were in a difficult place. They went through many trials. Who placed them there in that desolate place? Well, God placed them there. And why did God have them wander in that wilderness? Why did he have them come out of Egypt and go through that place? Well, ultimately, the wilderness was a place for him to test their faith. The trial, the difficulty was meant to cause them to turn to God. But let me be very clear about this. God placed them there. God was directing them. However, God never tempted them to sin. So the question is, why did so many people turn away from God? Why did they sin? If the purpose of being in that wilderness was to test their faith, then why did they not trust God? Why did they sin against God? Well, we looked at this last week, but I think it's important to remember that in this text as well, the Bible says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God never tempts a person to sin, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So Israel... The church of Corinth, us, we are not tempted by God. He is not the one tempting us, enticing us to sin. So where do these enticements come from? And we looked at this last week because James 1.13 goes into verse 14 and says, each person is tempted when he's drawn away, he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And so you sin because you have an inner desire to trust yourself and not trust God. And, and when desire has, when desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And so the scripture says that our temptations come from within, they come from without as well. Satan tempts us. So our sinful desires tempt us. Satan tempt, uh, tempts us. He's the tempter. And also we find that there's temptations in the world. And so temptations come from three different places, three different means through Satan, through the world, and through our own desires. And so what is the definition, therefore, of temptation? If you want to write this down, you can. If you have a pen, it's probably be good for you as you think through what temptation is. Temptation is anything that entices your heart to obey your will instead of God's will. Temptation is anything that entices your heart to obey your will instead of God's will. And so let me be clear, it is not it is not a sin to be tempted. Every one of us is tempted. We are tempted by Satan and evil forces. We're tempted by the world. We're tempted by our own sinful desires. Temptation is not a sin. It's a sin when you give in to those desires. 
And so what is sin, therefore? Sin is the choice to disobey, I'm sorry, the choice to obey our will instead of God's will. So notice temptation is something that that entices my heart to obey my will instead of God's will. But sin is therefore giving in. It's surrendering to my will instead of obeying God's will. Let me just have you think about it like this. Think about a person maybe who's rude to you. Maybe they say something rude. Maybe they do something rude to you. Maybe they make a snide remark. And so you're tempted to be angry. You're tempted to snap back at that person or maybe say something sarcastic. You know, they hurt you, you're going to hurt them. So, so you have this person who's being rude to you. Well, that's temptation. Those things happen every day, right? Now, often we're driving down the street or we're in a store, we're at home, and we go, oh, I can't believe that person did that to me. Well, we shouldn't be surprised. Like temptations are all around us. But, but temptations are that which is entices us to obey our will instead of God's will. And when does sin occur? Sin occurs when you give in to those selfish thoughts. And in your heart, you, you lift yourself up in pride. Maybe you huff and you puff and you grumble or maybe even say something back because you were not served how you expected to be served. And so, so understand the difference there. You have temptations that come every day, and sin occurs when you give in to those temptations. If you surrender to your selfish desires, then you sin against God. And even in that example, notice that the sin starts in your mind, right? Yes, the temptation maybe came from someone, but even in your own heart, you are tempted to have selfish thoughts, Maybe to think mean things about that person. Maybe to even huff at that person and scowl and maybe say something. And so sin grows. It grows from a thought and it grows to a meditation and it develops into much, much more. In fact, notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, notice in verse number 12, where does this temptation take place? Where does temptation take place? Verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed. Notice that important word of thinks. Where do you think? It's your mind. It's your inner person. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's saying, listen, you are going to be tempted in your mind. That's where it starts. Notice verse number 12, what are you tempted in your mind to do? To trust yourself, to believe your own lies, to follow your heart's desire instead of God's desire, God's will. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, there is no temptation overtaken you. And the idea is to lay hold on you, to, to snatch you. And so temptation is, is coming for you and it attacks you your mind. And notice in verse 13 that each of us will be individually tempted, but our temptations are not unique. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Every one of us has certain desires to be tempted to fulfill God's, to fulfill our own will, outside of God's will, 
And in some sense, those temptations are individual. They're personal. You might be tempted to sin in a way that maybe someone else is not tempted. For instance, you, you might be at work and you, know, you handle the cash at work or whatever. And honestly, pocketing that cash isn't a temptation for you. But there might be someone else that's in a place of employment and they see that cash and they are strongly tempted to pocket that money. Some of you are more enticed to want to be accepted. So your thoughts and your decisions revolve around how, how do I get people to like me? Some of you are not tempted in that regard. Some are lured by the immorality of adultery. Others are lured and enticed by the immorality of homosexuality. Even within this room, there are people who, who struggle with different type of, of uh, temptations in regard to immorality. What might be a temptation for the baby boomer generation might not be a temptation for the Gen Z generation, right? I mean, the point is, is that all of us do have individual personal temptations, but in verse 13, he's saying, listen, that does not mean, though, that the temptations you're facing are unique to you. Look at verse 13. He says, that is not common to man. In other words, it's a shared human experience. Maybe not everyone has the same experience as you, but many people face the same temptations you do. I think this is probably one of the great deceptions within the church, and that is that people sometimes walk in a building like this, and they look around here, and you guys are, are dressed very nicely. You have smiles on your faces. Everything seems so wonderful in life, and you think, about your own struggles, your own temptations, you think, people do not face what I'm facing. Like, I'm alone in this. You know, the truth is, if you could see and know the temptations that some of the other people in this room are facing, what you would realize is you have a lot more in common than you realize. That's what the scripture is talking about here. Because God is faithful, we can trust his word about temptation. What does his word say? It's that you're going to be tempted Yes, your temptations are similar to other people. Other people are going through some of the same things that you're struggling with. So we should expect this. And so I think it's therefore very important for us every morning throughout our day as we go to work, as we drive in the car, to remember that temptations will come into our life. Because isn't it so often that we are surprised by temptations? Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verse 1 to his disciples, temptations are sure to come. Why would Jesus say that? Isn't that like a duh? They're sure to come. You know why I think he said it? Because sometimes we forget they're going to come. Or sometimes we don't expect them to come. And so what does Jesus say in response to that? Temptations are sure to come. In verse 3 of Luke 17, he says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. So, so think about your own temptations. Think about the temptations of other people and seek to reconcile with God and with others. Be spiritually prepared. I think this means for us as parents, your kids probably are going to test your patience this week. I mean, right? We can go into weeks and we can expect like, okay, everything's supposed to be hunky-dory this week. No problems. And then we're surprised. Why are they acting selfishly? 
Why are there problems? Why did that person drop that on the ground? What's wrong with you? Kids, teenagers, you're going to be tempted this week. You're probably going to be tempted to daydream at some point. Maybe to be lazy in your schoolwork. Maybe to be selfish with some of the possessions that you have. Employees, there's probably going to be someone at work who will annoy you or tempt you to gripe and complain. The point is, as we're walking through life, we should expect temptations to come. Because God is faithful, we can trust what he says about temptation. And then secondly, because God is faithful, we can trust his work throughout temptation. Because God is faithful, you can trust his work throughout temptation. Look at verse 13, God is faithful. And notice the two works God is faithful to do throughout your temptations. God is faithful and he will first not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, number two, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And church, put your attention on those three wonderful words in verse 13 right there. God is what? He's faithful. God is faithful. That really, I think, is, is the focus of this verse here. God is faithful. This is the truth about God that is the foundation for victory in the Christian life. This attribute of God is the rock on, put, on which we, we build our spiritual lives. The faithfulness of God is the reason why you can have assurance in the midst of intense temptation. Because God is faithful. God is faithful means he's reliable. He is steadfast. He will always do what he says. He cannot and will not undo something that he guarantees. He is unwavering in his love, in his commitment for you, in his mercy, in his grace in your life. 1 Kings 8, 56 says, Not one word has failed of all the good promises he made. Everything he says is true. You can trust that. Psalm 89, 8 says, your faithfulness is all around you, O Lord. God is faithful and he has surrounded himself with the evidence of his faithfulness. There are things every day that you depend on and it's there because God is faithful. I mean, just think about the dependability of his creation. The laws of physics don't change. You can trust they are dependable, right? Whatever laws of physics you were taught in the 1970s are the same laws that are true today in the 2020s. We expect the earth to rotate and give us new days, and we trust that will faithfully happen. You set your alarm at night because you expect in the morning you're going to wake up to a sunshiny day. Thank the Lord for California. 
except for Saturday. That was pretty foggy. The placement of the stars in space. Think about that. They are so trustworthy that the North Star is still used today when navigational, when navigational systems go haywire. I was reading about uh, submarines, and of course, they have all their navigational equipment, but there's a time where something happens. They surface, and what do they look to? The North Star. God calculated the universe with faithfulness, and it displays his own faithfulness. And God is faithful in what he does, and God is faithful in who he is. If he reneged on one promise, if he faltered in one way, church, he would no longer be God. And so we can trust that God is faithful. And so why is God's faithfulness so important in times of temptation? It's because God promises in those times of temptation that he will work, that he will deliver us in victory. So notice the, t- the two key works that God faithfully does for us. First, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So God divinely limits the temptation so that it, it is not beyond your ability to resist. So even over your temptation, God has the ultimate power and he limits the temptation's power. Now, if God has power to limit our temptations, have you, ever, have you ever thought, why doesn't he just remove the temptations? Like, why doesn't it just go away? Well, think about it this way. If you're in school, why do professors and teachers give exams? If you're a math class or if you're in any other type of class, why do they give you a test or a quiz? Well, it's to test your knowledge, right? It's to see if you study that, to see if you understand the material. Why does God allow testing of temptations? Well, it's to see what you really, let's see what you really want. Do you want God's will or do you want your own will? Temptations reveal what you really love. Do you really love God or do you just really love yourself? Think about the temptations Christ went through. Jesus Christ is God, 100% God, is God, uh, will be God. He always is God, but he became man and he has the nature of human And God the Father directed Christ to go into the wilderness. And just think about this temptation that Christ went through in the wilderness. He was directed by the Father to go into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus, that's God the Son, was led by the Spirit, that's uh, God the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So God the Father ordained that Jesus would be led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, into a very difficult place to be tempted. Who was it that tempted him? It wasn't God. It was whom? It was the devil. So notice God didn't tempt 
Jesus, but he did allow Satan to tempt Jesus. Why? Why was Jesus tempted like that? Well, J. Vernon McGee, old-time radio preacher, said it like this. Jesus was not tempted to see if he would fall. He was tempted to show that he could not fall. The temptation of Jesus was ordained by the Father to prove that Jesus was the perfect, righteous Son, that he had enough obedience, that he was obedient enough because he was perfect in obedience to conquer sin. Think about Job. Remember Job in the Old Testament? Job who lost everything in his life except his own life. Satan went to God and asked permission to tempt Job with pain and with suffering and with loss. And Satan's hope was that Job would curse God and disobey God. Why did God allow Satan to tempt Job? It was not to punish Job. God made it clear that he allowed Satan and, and, and limited Satan's ability even to cause him to suffer, to tempt him. Why did God allow Satan to tempt Job? Well, it was so that Job would be refined, so that Job would trust the Lord more. Job even said, this is his own testimony in Job 23.10, but he that's speaking of God, God knows the way that I take. Like his suffering is not unknown to God. God's the one who oversees all. He's sovereign over all. And he's the one trying me. And I shall come forth as gold. God's trying his faith. God was not the one tempting him, but God did put him in that situation. And why did God do that? Why did he allow Satan to tempt him? Was, it was so that Job would trust the Lord. And Job did trust the Lord. And there were some areas that Job didn't trust the Lord. God refined him. Remember Peter. Peter is at the Last Supper. Peter has a lot of pride in his heart. Jesus was aware that Satan was at work in some of his followers and, and actually at work in Peter. He was tempting Peter, and Jesus said to Peter, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So Satan wants to come after you. And notice here that Jesus is aware of Satan's desire to tempt Peter and, and Jesus allows this to happen. So Satan's going to be tempting him, sifting him like we, tempting him to lie and to deny. And then Jesus says, I've prayed for you that what? That your faith may not fail. Why was this in his life? Why was he going through this hardship? Why was Satan tempting him? It was to test his faith. And notice Jesus, Jesus' confidence in the faithfulness of God. And when you, Peter, have turned again, God's not going to give up on you, Peter. Like you might fail God, but he won't fail you. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter, Job, Jesus, 
and those temptations, God was faithfully at work. And so if you look in verse 13, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So God allows temptations to test you, and he will not allow your temptation to test you above your ability to say no. So so what is your ability in temptation? Well, it's not in your own strength. It's not in your own effort. This verse is not teaching you can resist temptation if you just trust in yourself. Like you have within you the strength and the ability to say no if you just if you just look to you. That's not what it's teaching. This verse is teaching when you're trusting God, when you're depending on his faithfulness, you can overcome any temptation in your life. Do you understand the difference between that? That he says God is faithful, which means you're trusting in the faithfulness of God, not in yourself. In fact, think about First Second Thessalonians 3, 3. The Lord is faithful. Here we see it again. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one, that Satan. So God is faithful to protect you from being overwhelmed by your temptation and by Satan's temptations. This means then you don't have to fear satanic powers overcoming you. We are in the midst of October and you see all these crazy things that people are putting in front of their houses. And so some of it's just our culture. It's kind of the weirdness of October, I guess. But then there's also just a lot of demonic type of things that are happening in our culture. Some of these movies coming out are very demonic movies. And so as you look at that, sometimes as Christians, we know that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual powers. And so you might be tempted to fear. Like, what if they overwhelm me? What if if something, there's a temptation I just can't handle? No, actually, God says, you don't have to fear that. God is faithful to defend you. God is faithful to guard you. And he will limit Satan's power over you. There's No temptation that's going to come in your life that you don't, by God's grace, have the ability to resist. This means then also that any temptation in your life is able to be defeated by the power of God. Imagine Jesus at midnight in that garden praying, knowing that Satan's full force of his spiritual forces are upon him. Satan wants to do everything he can to stop the will of God because that's what Satan's against. And the disciples come with him and Peter, James, and John, he says, guys, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, that you don't open the door and give in to temptation. But they're tired, right? It's midnight They've been listening to Jesus speak. They just ate a full meal. Like they've had a long week. What do they really want to do right now? They just want to lay down and go to sleep. In other words, it's been a very difficult day. And I just need a little me time, right? In the garden. Curl up, close my eyes, maybe keep one eye open just in case Jesus comes over so I can pretend I was praying. 
they couldn't help but sleep. Jesus over and over came to them and says, guys, wake up, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. But they couldn't, right? Why couldn't they? Because they were depending upon their own flesh. Jesus went on to say, the spirit indeed is willing, speaking of the Holy Spirit, but the flesh is weak. And so therefore, that's why he's saying you need to watch and pray, pray and ask God to give you strength. You need the Holy Spirit to give you his grace. Spirit is willing. He can give you the strength and the power to overcome. God, Christian, God is faithful. He's faithful every morning. He's faithful every day you're at work or you're in school. He's faithful at night. He's faithful if you work the night shift. He's faithful when you're in the car. He's faithful when you're doing the dishes. God is faithful to help you. He's faithful to help the one who is, who is suffering, who is in pain. He's faithful to help you resist bitterness, but to be thankful. God is faithful to enable the man who is tempted to be angry, to rather have self-control. God is faithful to give the tired teenager strength to get out of bed instead of hitting the snooze button. Right? Because God is faithful, you are able to resist temptation. And then look at the next work. Because God is faithful, verse number 13, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Notice in verse 13, he doesn't provide a way of escape so it can be over. Or so you can get out of it. Many people misread this to say, God will get me out of this temptation if I just trust him. Or God will remove the temptation from my life. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, God will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it, to endure the temptation without sinning. Endure it means that it might not stop. It might. God might take it away. Sometimes that happens, but sometimes it doesn't happen. The Greek word for endure is a compound word, hupo, which means under, then pharaoh, which means to bear. So the idea is that it's, you're bearing under, you're enduring. In other words, sometimes we expect that our temptations should or will go away, but this verse gives you a clue that a life, that life is a lot more difficult than that, that your temptations will have to be endured. And this is when we want to quit, right? This is tiring. Every day saying no to my flesh. Every day fighting that temptation. I got to get up another day and fight this war. When is it going to end? Well, when you close your eyes and you see the Lord Jesus Christ, and as the song says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. But it's exhausting, isn't it? I think that sometimes we expect as Christians that when is it going to get easier? You know, okay, when I get out of high school, it's going to be a lot less stressful. When I get to college, you know, it's going to be a lot less stressful. When I get married, then it's, I can take a break, you know, and then when I have kids, like that's going to be, you know, and then, then maybe my kids are older, or maybe, and then you kind of go through life and you... 
wake up in the nursing home and you realize you're on drugs. Maybe it is a little easier right now. But you see the point? It's like, I think throughout life, we're expecting when is it going to not be a struggle anymore? And church, can I just tell you, this, is, this verse is telling us that life is difficult. It's tiring to keep saying no to your flesh and to keep walking with the Lord. It's enjoyable to walk with the Lord. It's a blessing to walk with the Lord. But it also takes endurance. It means you must endure. Last about a week and a half ago, my son and I went to the Channel Islands, and uh, we did a lot of hiking. We took a kayak, and uh, there's a lot of endurance. You know, I'm not one that walks, you know, 10 to 12 miles a day. When I checked it at the end of one of the days, it said I had walked 12 miles. This wasn't flat. Like, this is up. This is down. This is the hot sun blazing on me. This is, this is like on an island where there's only one place to get water, so if you don't pack it out, like you don't have water. So one time we were hiking and we ran out of water. Yeah, that was kind of crazy. We got some cra- pretty crazy stories. One time we were, I decided to go kayaking. And, uh, and I asked the, the person who's in charge of the, you know, the ranger, I asked him, is, you know, how far is this? And he's like, you know, do you kayak a lot? And well, I've kayaked on the lake before, you know. He's like, okay. And uh says, well, it's about a, a two-and-a-half-hour to three-hour uh, kayak trip there. And then, you know, on the way back, you, it'll be a little faster because it'll go with the current. And uh, so I was like, oh, we can do this. You know, it's my son and I. He's, thir- he's almost 13, so he'll, he'll help me, right? And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a long kayak trip. It was a long day. <laughs> and... And if you've seen the Channel Islands, uh, Santa Cruz is where we were at, you will know, like, there's a big cliff. I mean, all the way down, like, there was literally nowhere to park your boat. So, you know, we're halfway there on the first leg, which was about an hour and a half into the kayak trip, and my arms are hurting me. And I'm thinking, I don't think we should be doing this. Like this and, and there's nowhere to park. You're in the middle of the ocean. There's no, no cell service. You know, we got a little bit of water, a little bit of food, and, and I told Isaac a couple times, I said, you might be taking us the rest of the way. And, uh, but we had to keep going, so we kept going, and then at one point, we were about two hours into it, and uh, the end of our paddles began to fall off. And um, that was kind of scary, too, when you realize if that thing fell down to the bottom of the ocean, like, I don't know where we would go. Like, we're just going to float out to sea. And anyways, and we made it there, and we made it back, and there was a lot of times where we were just enduring. I mean, even on the way back, I'm like, my arms cramped up, <laughs> and it was hard. It was difficult. And I, I'm on the walk, on the hike, on the kayak trip, there's many times where I thought, you know what? Life is difficult, right? Life, there's endurance, and you just got to keep going. And part of it's, I got to keep my son alive. <laughs> I think my wife would be upset if that didn't happen. And... And I got to stay alive. Like it, but I'm looking forward not only to the blessing on the other side, but I just got to keep going. And I think that's what kind of you see here. It's like God gives us the strength to endure. And the escape that we're escaping from is escaping from sin to obedience. That's what you see here. The escape is, is, is escaping from sin to obedience. And the word escape is the idea that you are surrounded by enemies. But God says, hey, listen, here is the path. Here's the escape to obedience. 
I think about Israel. They're hemmed in, right, at the Red Sea. You have mountains on one side, mountains on the other side, the, the Egyptian armies behind them, and all in front of them is this sea, and they're hemmed in. They're toast. The, you know, the enemy has surrounded them, you could say it that way. And as they trusted the faithfulness of God, he provided a way of escape. He parted that Red Sea. There was dry ground. They stepped out and trusting God's faithfulness, and God gave them a way of escape. And I think that's what we're seeing here. As we trust the faithfulness of God, he provides a way of escape from sin to obedience. And do you notice how I worded that? Did you hear that? As we trust the faithfulness of God, he provides a way of escape. What's the difference between these two statements? God provides a way of escape, or as we trust the faithfulness of God, he provides a way of escape. And the first one is, is true, but if you leave out our faith and the faithfulness of God, you leave out our responsibility. The first line could leave out my responsibility to depend on God's faithfulness. It's like the fool who says, yeah, I know I'm struggling with that sin, but man, hopefully God's going to deliver me next time. Oh, he's not really trusting the faithfulness of God. He just hopes God's going to give him an out. And so, so really what you see in this text of scripture is it's connected to God's faithfulness. Because God is faithful, then he gives you a way, a way of escape. And so you're trusting God's faithfulness to give you a way of escape. And so there's no promise in here for a person who is not depending on the faithfulness of God. And what are those ways of escape? Well, I think sometimes the way of escape is the providence of God. Have you ever been in a situation and you're being tempted and then something just comes in your life? Or maybe you're struggling with something and it's like something happens and you realize, okay, that's why this happened. I think about uh, a young lady that maybe has an accountability partner. Maybe she meets every Tuesday morning with her accountability partner and it's Monday and she's tempted to do something. She thinks, oh, tomorrow morning, I'm going to meet with that lady and like, I'm going to have to answer to her. So, and that's God's providence in her life. Or I think about children who are in the home. Some of you children in here, you have some secret sins in your life. Maybe some things that are enslaved you in your own mind, and you're thinking, how do I get out of this? Do you know what your way of escape is? It's called your parents. Like, they're there to help you. So God has providentially put someone in your life to help you. For some of you in this room, the way of escape is this sermon. God providentially put this sermon in your life, and you know you need to respond to God's word. I also think the way of escape probably most prominently, is the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin. It's like that, that one second, maybe two second moment when we're about to do something or we're thinking something, and all of a sudden it comes to our mind, don't do that. Like, don't have that bitterness towards that person. Is that right to do? Are you loving that person? And you have that conviction of the Holy Spirit. And then we think, well... Maybe just dwell in the bitterness a little bit more. <laughs> they really did wrong me. And then you've given in. Or, or don't, don't think about that. Don't look upon that person to lust after them. Well, maybe just a little bit of enjoyment won't hurt that much. 
and we give in to our sinful desires. Well, maybe I just need a little time of a pity party and we sin against the Lord. And so it's, those, it's that, you've heard of the five-second rule? This is like the one or two-second rule. It's like, you know, it's wrong. The Holy Spirit brings it to your mind. He's convicted you. And that's the time where you need to cry out to God. Help me, Lord. Give me strength, Lord. Help me to say no, Father. So the Holy Spirit, he convicts our hearts. He helps us to capture every thought. That's what the scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that we're to take every thought captive. It's like every thought that's in our mind needs to have a place where we place it and some needs to be thrown out and some needs to be, some thoughts need to be taken in and then the Holy Spirit changes our heart. And so I think the way of escape here most prominently is through the power of the Holy Spirit and his work in our heart. Church, God is faithful. And when we are tempted, some of you maybe feel the strong temptation, maybe even right now, you're tempted. God is faithful. He's faithful to help you, enable you to resist the temptation, and he provides a way of escape. And where where are we, or what are we, I should say, where are we to be in regard to God's faithfulness? It's on our knees. It's praying. It's watching. It's trusting him. There could be a person in here today, and you hear all this, and you're thinking, I uh, hear a lot about Jesus and hear a lot about escape. And friend, I want you to know if you're without Christ, that the most important escape for you right now is for you to know that you need to escape the judgment of God forever separated from him in hell. The scripture says that each person born to this world has a sinful nature and therefore they sin. And God is holy and God is just and God does condemn our sin, he will punish our sin, and each person needs to escape that punishment for sin. And guess what? You can't do it on your own. The only way for you to escape is to trust in Jesus. Jesus lived a life of obedience. He resisted every temptation, and he obeyed his Father perfectly. He died on the cross and took the judgment of the cross upon himself, the judgment for sin upon himself, and then he rose from the dead. And Jesus is in heaven, and he is faithful to forgive you if you turn and believe in Jesus as your Savior. And so, friend, if you're in here without Christ, you need to escape that by turning to Jesus Christ. And God is faithful. He is faithful. In church, God is faithful to us. The question for us is, will we trust in the faithfulness of God? Would you pray with me?